Good morning, everyone. Y'all sound amazing. Especially you, Nora. So, I know, that's exactly what you didn't want to happen. You're hiding for a reason. Um, So, uh, last week I asked you if you all had seen the TV show Undercover Boss. So, this week I want to ask you if you saw the movie X-Men. See, that's what you get, let me get away with last week. Now we're going to nerd it up even a little more. Um, so X-Men is, is a superhero movie. And in that movie, they call the superhero mutants. And it's very intriguing because it's, in this movie, the villains believe they are the good guys. So the villains believe they are teaching the world how to be nicer to mutants. So in the movie, there's this one scene where they capture this senator who's trying to pass laws against mutants. And so they think the way to teach him about love would be to subject him to radiation and turn him into a mutant. That's their answer. So they've got him strapped down to the table, and they're going to just fill him full of love. And uh, the, senator, the senator turns to the villain, and he says, whatever you're about to do to me, you'll make me right. It's a pretty profound line, you know, because he believes that they're evil. He believes that they're dangerous. And they're going to show him that they're not by turning him into a melted pile of jelly. But... He says, whatever you're about to do to me, you'll make me right. And Jesus is about to have a conversation with some folks in which the basic theme is, whatever you're about to do to me, you'll make me right. So we're getting ready to study uh, Matthew chapter 21, 22. We've been doing that. We'll do that just this week and next week. But before we do, um, I want to brag a little bit on our children's ministry, our campfire ministry, kindergarten through fourth grade. So uh, up there right now, Trissa and Coach Kristen and Coach Diana and all the team, they're teaching our kids a Bible story as they do every week. But before they teach them the Bible story, they have a part in their curriculum that helps them know the story before the story, where they hear what has led up to the events they're studying that day. So a couple of weeks ago, Alex Smith was up here, and he was telling us how to use the scriptures and how to read the Bible. And one thing he said is you always want to read in context. You always want to know what has led up to the passage you're in, what comes out of it. That'll help you understand the passage that that you're reading. Well, what they're doing up there, the story before the story, that is reading in context for elementary kids. So I am just really proud that here in our church, from, from kindergarten, we're teaching kids how to handle scripture and the right way to study and, and know the Bible. So in honor of our Bible scholars in kindergarten through fourth grade, I'm going to say it's time for, and we're all going to say the story before the story, because they do that every Sunday. All right, are you ready? So before Matthew chapter 21, verse 33, it's time for... Your kids would be proud. So before what we're about to read, Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on a baby donkey because that was an Old Testament sign he picked to announce that I am the coming king, not just to save Israel, but the world. So he rode that baby donkey into town and a big to-do about that. Then he goes into the temple and he says, "Um, this is supposed to be a house of prayer and you're turning it into a den of robbers. And he kicks over chairs and turns over tables. Then he goes out and he finds a fig tree with no fruit on it. And basically, well, he causes the tree to wither. And basically, he's saying, just like that temple has become not about worship of God and not about the mission of God, it no longer bears fruit or a harvest. And this fig tree no longer bears fruit or a harvest. This fig tree is going to wither just like this temple is going to wither. And then some priests came to him. This is what we did last week. And they said, who are you to do this stuff and talk this way? Who do you think you are? 
Where does your authority come from? And then Jesus asks them a question, and he reveals that their question is not an honest question. They don't really want to know where he got his authority. They really just want to not follow him and, and find something they can put him in jail for. And so he reveals that their heart, like the temple, is also not bearing the fruit of God, not focused on the mission of God. And then he tells them a story about the types of people that are going to the kingdom ahead of them because they will uh, look at themselves and turn and repent and those sorts of things. And so that was where we left off. Well, we're going to learn this week that Jesus did not just have one story for them. He had two stories to tell them, and that's where we pick up now. Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. So we get this picture of this guy. He builds a vineyard, and it's a really cool one. The wine press is right there on the site. There's a fence around it for protection. There's a watchtower to watch for anybody. I thought this was... I must confess, for years as I read this, I thought the point of that was just to say, he's given him a really cool vineyard. However, I should have known better. Um, Because we learned just a few weeks ago, when you study the Bible and you find a passage that has some tricky things that are hard to interpret, or maybe what might be unnecessary detail, that we should stop and ask ourselves, is that correct grammar? We should stop and ask ourselves, has this... um, Saw you. Uh, I saw, um, I, we should ask ourselves, have, have these words been used in Scripture before? Is this meant to attract our attention to another part of the Bible? And if it is, we should go and read that part because the meaning there probably helps us understand the meaning here. So has there ever been a vineyard in the Bible that had a wine press dug right on the site and a watchtower put in and all these kinds of details? And the answer turns out to be yes. Yes, that is nearly a quote from Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet from 500 or more, since we're so early in Isaiah, years earlier. So let's hit that hyperlink and jump back to Isaiah chapter 5 and see what we learn. First, I want to show you what Jesus is trying to draw our attention to. It says, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. Here's the key part. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. He expected it to yield uh, wine grapes, basically, but it's yielded wild grapes, which as a kid, you may have found those in the woods and ate them and found out they're not really much good for anything. So here we are back at a story about fruit and not bearing fruit, which we've just come out of some stories about that. Now, if you read the rest of Isaiah chapter 5, it says, because... Basically, the nation of Israel has not borne the fruit of God. It will be destroyed, and it even specifically predicts an enemy army will march in. And that happened in in, in Isaiah's time. I think Jesus is telling them, these things may be about to happen again. We may be right back in the same situation. So let's take that meaning from Isaiah chapter 5 and listen to the rest of Jesus' story. When the harvest time came, he sent slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. So Jesus has taken us into the prophets 
and reminded us that when Israel wasn't bearing fruit before, God sent these messengers. And because he's got us thinking about the prophets, because he quoted Isaiah, we remember this too. They did stone, kill, and beat all the, all the prophets as well. Isaiah was sawn in, in two, into two pieces by the people of Israel for bringing that message that we just read you. And so you've got this story about these messengers coming from God and then being killed. In fact, what has just happened to John the Baptist before this story? He came to announce the coming Messiah. He was put into prison and he's just had his head removed in the court of King Herod. And so you're starting to see where the story is going. Now, you cannot find the stories of the prophets being killed in the Old Testament. If you've, if you've only read the Old Testament, you, you might not know that that was their fate. Do you know why that is? Because prophets can't record their own death. Usually the events which lead up to one's execution does not find one with pen and paper in hand. But it's something from uh, Israel's history that everyone in the New Testament seems to know about. Um, Jesus mentions it uh, just a couple of chapters later in Matthew 23 when he says, And you say, if we had lived in the days of the scriptures, we would not have taken part in the shedding of the prophet's blood. So basically he's saying, you're saying we know the prophets were all killed, but if we had been there, we wouldn't have done it. And he's kind of saying, I think you would. I think you're about to do it again right away. Um, the Apostle Paul, some decades later, I keep seeing the Apostle Paul. It's, that's not true. Stephen, the Apostle Stephen says the same thing. He, he asked, which of the prophets did, you, uh, did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one. And now you have become his betrayers and murderers. So everyone seems to know this history that when messengers have been sent in the past to say you're not following the plan of God and, and taking part in his harvest, that instead of turning toward God, they instead killed the messengers. And I think Jesus is telling this story to say, aren't you just about to do it again? Jesus continues this story. He then sent his son to them saying, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son... They said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out, in the out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now at this point, doesn't everyone in the room kind of figure out what he's saying? And where this is leading, especially a few days before the cross. But believe it or not, they hadn't gotten it yet, the message. And so Jesus goes on and asks them a question. He says, now... When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants? And here's how the priests answer. They said, they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him the produce at harvest time. And this is now the second time in five minutes that Jesus has gotten them to describe their own behavior and pronounce judgment on it without realizing that's what they were doing. He'll, he'll, he'll kill those tenants and he'll give that vineyard to someone else. And that's right. In fact, that is what happens. Uh, in just 40, uh, 40 years, the Roman Empire will march into Jerusalem. They will tear that temple down stone by stone, throw the stones over into a valley. 
And that will be the end of the temple even to this day. It does not exist. However, the harvest of the kingdom of God has continued. The vineyard was given to another. And now the harvest of God is accomplished by Jesus Christ and by the church. And that mission continues to this very day. And I like to believe to this very room. So then Jesus goes on. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is amazing in our eyes. This now becomes the third time that we have gotten something from Psalm 118. So when Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem, the song they were singing was from Psalm 118. When he turned over the tables and chairs in the temple, then the children sang. The song they were singing also came from Psalm 118. And now Jesus himself quotes Psalm 118. And he says, have you not heard that the stone the builders rejected, God is making the cornerstone. So we're going to have a little Bible nerd moment here. Um, Do you all know what a cornerstone is? Have you seen it in the foundation of a building here in the States? You know, we'd, we'd put a stone in the foundation. Sometimes you engrave on it who built the building at the time and, 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 and when and, and stuff like that. It's a cool stone. Do you know that is not actually what Jesus says in the Greek, nor what the psalm says in the Hebrew. In, in the original passages, it doesn't say cornerstone. It says when you build an archway, this stone at the top. It's the keystone. However, if you got a Bible and it said, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the keystone, you would say, a can of beer. <laughs> um, but, it, but it has another name. The stone the builders rejected has become the headstone, which makes us think of a graveyard. The stone the builders rejected has become the headstone. Then we get really strange interpretations. So our translators, knowing that we no longer know that much about archways, said, let's just call it cornerstone. It'll let people know, like, you know, a really important cool stone in the foundation. It was pretty good. However, it just lacks a little bit because when you build an archway, um, you build their stones up and you have to put wood supports between them, especially as they begin to angle toward the middle so it'll all stay up. But once you put the keystone, the headstone in, you can remove all the support structures and it will stand. And if you pull the keystone out, the whole arch collapses. And so Jesus is saying just a little bit more than the stone God has rejected, or the stone you have rejected, God wants to be the coolest stone. He's saying the stone you're rejecting, which would be him, God wants to use to be the thing that holds the whole kingdom of God up. Without it, you would have to have all these wood supports. In fact, we've had wood supports, the temple that has got us through as the kingdom of God was built and the time of the Messiah came. And now with the headstone, you can remove all the supports and the kingdom of God will stand if you let the keystone, the headstone, not the cornerstone, be what it is. In fact, he tells them that rejecting the keystone and the headstone is trouble. He says, um, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people that produce the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. He said, if you take this keystone out and throw it on the ground, you're going to trip over it, you're going to fall, and that's going to be it. Or its judgment will fall on you, one or the other. So you've got to respect the keystone, the headstone, Christ Jesus, as the final piece in God's plan of building his kingdom.
Now, after hearing all of these stories about a vineyard owner who gives a great vineyard and you get to farm it, he just asks for the produce and then he sends some messengers to say, where's my harvest? And they kill him. And then he sends some more messengers and says, where's my harvest? And they kill him. And then they send his son and they say, oh, good, let's kill him. After hearing that whole story, that this is still what they decide to do about what they've heard. When the chief priest and the Pharisees heard these parables, they realized he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because the crowds regarded him as a prophet. And we all know they didn't just want to arrest him and have him in jail. They wanted him crucified. They wanted him to hang on a Roman cross and be silenced once and for all. That's, that was their takeaway from the story. And so Jesus is at this point telling them, what you're about to do to me, you'll make me right. You'll make me right in this story. You'll make all the Old Testament prophets right. That when God sends messengers and sends more messengers and even sends his son, you don't turn. And so this vineyard too will be taken down and a new one built in its place. And it will be me. And that's the meaning of our story. So, if it's just a history lesson from the Bible, we haven't quite gone to church yet. So it's not really church until we ask ourselves, where are we in this story? What, what does this story call us to? And so, this story really goes out to all of us this morning who may be rejecting Jesus as the cornerstone, well, as the keystone, as the, the headstone of what God is building. We may not be so sure that Jesus is the one that every, all of history is built up to and that God wants to build his kingdom on. We may think it's not him or it's him plus five other keystones or it's whatever keystone you want. You know, we, we may not be there yet. So we learned another Bible, set technique, Bible study technique a few weeks ago in which we said if you find a question in the Bible, you should stop and ask yourself that question also. So we have two question marks in this passage. The first one, Jesus says... What will the landowner do to those tenants when he returns? So we have to use our imagination and ask, if Jesus is indeed the keystone of all God is building, and we reject that, what will he do? The second question he asks is, have you not read the scriptures that the stone the builders rejected has become the keystone, the headstone? So we have to ask ourselves, have we not read the scriptures? Do we even know this story of, of what was predicted about who Jesus will be and, and God's promise, what he was trying to build, how he's trying to create a light for the whole world? And even when that didn't happen, he sent Jesus to be the fulfillment because he wants that to happen. Who Jesus is? What did he claim to be? Have we read this story? How are we rejecting him without really even knowing very much about him? Have you not read these scriptures? There's nothing I can say today that will make you believe that Jesus is the, the archway keystone of everything God is building. It doesn't work like that, that I could say something so clever that you believe he's the center of the universe and worth putting your life around. Um, that is a work that God does. Um, he uses preaching. I, I hope I'm not wasting my time. Um, he also uses the scripture even more. He also uses your own interactions with him, your own prayers, and even deep thoughts that are somewhat similar to prayers. He, the experiences you're having in life, he brings all this together, and somehow you come to this moment 
with all that input where you say, I do believe that rejecting Jesus as a capstone has not brought me the life I hoped. It's not brought me purpose. It's not brought me the clarity I seek. It's not brought me much. And so perhaps it's time I investigate him being the key to everything and what, how life might change if I oriented that way. So some of you, everyone's in a different place on this journey. Some of you have decided that some time ago. I believe Jesus is the capstone, and since I have made that decision, things have changed. My outlook has changed. Things are different about me. Some of you, that's where you are. You're even wanting to join in the kingdom of God and help build an arch and um, bring, in, bring in the harvest from your life after what God has done. Some of you are only maybe just now coming to that. Like almost right here today, you're thinking, this is probably it. Since I started exploring this, I've seen, felt, experienced, read, heard things I never heard before or in a way I never heard before. And this, this may be the moment. And if that is you today, um, we want to help you start that journey. So there's a card in the seat in front of you, and you can pull that out and fill that out. There's a place to mark, today I want to become a follower of Jesus. Now, every Sunday, there's a team out in the lobby that's ready to help you begin this thing called Discover Faith. Now, of course, today is one of only about three Sundays in the year when we're not having it. <laughs> so you can, Jesus can laugh about that later. Every 50, 49 Sundays a year, we'll have it. Next Sunday, we'll have it, okay? So bring your card back. And there's a team that's waiting out there every Sunday, except for today and some Sunday holidays. And, uh, and it's just a one-hour conversation and a week's worth of things to help you begin a week's worth of a spiritual life growing with Jesus. Some tools you can grab onto right away. Now, part of that is it'll also show you things for the rest of the month and the year and the years to come. It's a lifelong journey, but let's just, let's just bite off a week at a time, shall we? And so you can start that next week. We'd love for you to do that. Others of you are not quite there even yet. You're here, I'm glad, investigating, maybe watching online, maybe someone shared this with you. Um, some of you are not even sure that you're that dissatisfied with your life as it is. So all these times will come. God is at work, and I would just want you to know, if you come to a place when you think, I wonder if rejecting Jesus was too hasty of a decision for me, we would want you to feel welcome to come here and explore different thoughts about that. And we would love to do that with you. So I want to tell you a little bit of my story, and I have agonized over this story for years. I have put this story into many sermons and always ripped it out before Sunday. Um, and I almost took it out a couple of times this week. Uh, not because it is a risque story, but because it is a very dumb story. This story I'm going to tell you is extremely dumb. <laughs> However, um, when does that ever stop me? Um, no, uh, <laughs> it does have a little Halloween twist to it, and we're three weeks from Halloween, so... Let's, let's do it and see if we get away with it. Okay, I've got a picture for you, I hope. So let's throw, yes, okay. So um, we're, we're focused on the gentleman in the hat. Who is that? Freddy Krueger, right, from A Nightmare on Elm Street. We're getting our Halloween twist. I would also want to let you know that that is me. That, that is your pastor. 
um, that year, Lisa Mount High School's homecoming parade theme was A Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, yeah, it was such a big, that movie was such a big deal back then. So, so there I am, and you can't see it in the picture, but there are dead Oak Park Northman football players laying at my feet. You know, and Freddie's got his Tiger jersey on. He has uh, polished them all off. And I didn't know anything about football, but I put on a jersey for this day. Um, and we dragged that float through the middle of downtown. And the town went berserk, not in a good way. This was a really hard year here in Lee Summit for church-going folk because up until that year, uh, every, day, every year before Christmas break, you went down to the gym, and there was baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph. But that year, a court injunction was slapped on that service, and that was taken out of the public school. And so um, people were not happy. And then we dragged this down through the middle of downtown. So some really clever people filled up the letters to the editor's page with, with things like, so Jesus is out and Freddie is in. I thought that was horribly clever. Um, and uh, they were saying, you, you know, you can't expose kids to this stuff. It's, it's violent. Um, the movies also contain sexual immorality. They also contain horrible language. They also contain horrible attitudes toward parents and all sorts of other dark and satanic themes. And... Um, as the president of the freshman class, I felt like it was my duty to, to defend the Northman's Nightmare on Elm Street. So I said, you know, we're just, we're just, you know, it's a parody and it's a popular movie and we're just picking on Oak Park and, and we're still going to kill him. Um, and, and no one would get their values from a movie was my argument. And, and they read my letter to the editor and all my classes at high school and my English teachers helped me check the spelling and everything. No one would get their values from a movie, I said. The only problem is that that was not true. I, I had gotten my values from that movie. Um, some of the particular profanities that I used, I thought were cool, I got exactly from that movie. Um, all horror movies say parents just don't understand, so I didn't need much help with that theme. Um, also, some of attitudes about sexuality. I adopted from that movie because of some things Johnny Depp said in part one, and I thought, that sounds cool. Um, but if you, uh, it also has themes of revenge and then revenge for revenge, and there's actually a little gospel you could get from that story about how revenge only leads to evil, but I actually learned the opposite lesson that I was supposed to learn from that theme. Um, and then if you had asked me what I said about Jesus that year, I, I, would, I said this. I said, whether you call him Allah, Buddha, or Jesus, all religions pretty much teach the same thing. Whether you call him Allah, Buddha, or Jesus, all religions pretty much teach the same thing. Now, there's two problems with that. One, what Allah and Buddha teach about who we are, how the world came to be, who God is, if there is a God, and one there is and one there isn't, and, and what... Uh, that they it nothing asks of us. I mean, it's all very different. They don't even they don't all teach the same thing. First of all, it's not true. Second of all, guess where I got that from the novelization of A Nightmare on Elm Street three. I was such a geek that when Nightmare on Elm Street three came out, I went out and bought the book in advance of the movie and read it. Who does that? But somewhere in chapter two, one of the characters says, and I quote. Whether you call him Allah, Buddha, or Jesus, all religions pretty much teach the same thing. I totally got my view of God from a crummy novel from a B-horror movie. That is really dumb. So I give you, 
uh, way more credit than that. But I want to tell you that when the blinders came off some years later and I realized that these attitudes had not gotten me anywhere near the life that I wanted, when I began to turn to Jesus, he did not say to me, I told you so. And he did not say to me, it's about time. What Jesus said to me through the scriptures was, come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And whoever is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And he who the son has freed is free indeed. He adopted me as a son and my adoption papers were signed on the cross. And I was so grateful for that. So I give you a lot more credit than that. I know none of you would do something as dumb as developing your view of what it means to be a human and how you ought to act and think and, and especially your attitudes about God. You would not get those from a crummy novel about a bee horror movie. But I do want to ask, what have you led into your life that has informed your thoughts on these things, maybe different than these, these scriptures that tell the story of God's plan? What, what did you let in? And you thought, this won't be a problem. A lot of people do this. A lot of people think this way. A lot of people view this, listen to this, think about this, participate in this. And before you knew it, it had begun to change your attitude toward others, toward yourself, toward the world, and most importantly, toward God. Is there something like that? Because if there is, I would just want you to know that when that comes up empty and you decide you want to pick back up the stone that you rejected and try to fit it in as the headstone, that God will absolutely be there for you to do that. Jesus Christ will absolutely say to you, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. He is ready to adopt you. Your adoption papers are already signed on the cross. So I would just want you to know that you can do that. He is that kind of God. Which is interesting thing about Jesus' story. In the story Jesus tells, this landowner who built this vineyard, he winds up sounding really soft um, because he sends the, his slaves to say, okay, it's time to give the produce. I gave you guys this amazing vineyard. You get to live here and raise your families here and this puts food on your table and it's, it's all yours. You're tenant farmers. I don't even live there, but just give me the harvest. And then they don't. Instead, they kill the prophets. And they kill his prophets. They kill the messengers who come to tell them that, that he's not giving them the produce. Did you know that in ancient Israel law, if a landowner doesn't defend his claim to the land, squatters can take it. You have to defend your claim to your land or squatters can take it. That was ancient, the laws of ancient Israel especially when he chose to send his son. Did you notice they said, ooh, this is the heir. Let's take his inheritance. Why, why were they saying that? Because if the landowner has no heir and he dies, now no one owns the land. Now the squatters absolutely have a claim to it. 
And that's why the priests suggest violence. When Jesus said, what should that landowner do? The priests are like, he better send somebody in there and get those guys out by force or he's going to lose his whole family farm. You can't just let squatters move in and then kill the messengers and kill the messengers and certainly not kill your son. That practically gives them the legal right to take your farm. You have got to get in there and sweep them out or you're going to lose it all. That's, that was the law. And so... Why would a landowner do that unless he really, really wanted those tenants to live there and work there and make their living there and raise their families? And all he was asking is just give me the wine grapes, give me the produce, give me the harvest. That's all I want. I don't want to kick you out. It's the same with our God. Why would he send us prophets whom... Basically, we killed our race. And then send them more prophets than they killed. And then send the son whom we killed. And then raise from the dead and continue to offer us the kingdom unless he really, really wants us to have this kingdom. He really wants us to live here and to raise our families here and to enjoy the abundance of this amazing creation and to have peace and security here. He just says, just give me the harvest. Just give me the harvest. Just remember that you're to be a light to the whole world, an ever-expanding vineyard. You can't steal the kingdom of God, but you can inherit it. And he's already made you the heirs. Your adoption papers are signed. We only have to accept that. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for every person here, all of our stories. Help us to see, Lord, that you, Lord Jesus, are the keystone that's holding it all together. And we need not fear you. And that you have come that we might receive your whole kingdom and serve you with purpose. We thank you for making this way to us. For, for those to whom this is not so clear, I pray through experiences, through other scriptures, through other things heard, seen, and felt, that your truth could be known and embraced. We thank you for adopting us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.